This month's episodes concern a topic that can be traumatic, uncomfortable, or even activating for some listeners. The Passionate Stewardship Podcast and brand do not aim to evoke this response in anyone. Instead, we want to bring education, awareness, hope, and healing to anyone who is a victim and survivor of domestic violence. If you or someone you know is currently a victim of domestic violence, help and support are available. Please call your local domestic violence response organization or contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. The call is free and confidential and someone is available to support you 24-7, 365 days a year. You can also chat online or text START, that's S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, a podcast for helping professionals who strongly believe in supporting their community and the humans who live there. I am your host, Dr. Sherry. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you are taking care of yourself after these episodes. It is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It also is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. If you are a lady out there with some tatas or a man, I hope that you are doing your self-check at home. I hope you are making your mammogram appointments because they are very, very vital for our health. So please make your appointments. If you are nervous about those appointments, take someone for that support. Now, they can't go to the back with you, but make sure you take someone for that support system. So a couple weeks ago, we started our discussion discussing the areas of the power and control wheel. And as always, again, please ensure that you are taking care of yourself before, during, and after these episodes this month because I know they can be pretty heavy. And this is our last episode for the month of October. So I hope that you've been doing some radical self-care because this information can be heavy and it can even be activating for some listeners. So I hope that you are taking care of yourself. Domestic violence is a pattern of coercive behavior in which one person attempts to control another through threats or actual use of tactics, which may include any or all of the following, and that's physical, sexual, verbal, psychological aggression, stalking, or digital, we also call technology abuse. The behavior may occur during the relationship or after the relationship has ended. So before diving into the remaining components and tactics, let's talk a little bit about the power and control wheel. So the wheel was created in Duluth, Minnesota during, to say, around 1980s. And the wheel was created after domestic violence advocates, they were having numerous conversations with 
female victims about their personal experiences living with their harm doers. So you might've heard several episodes now this month, you might've heard me say the term harm doer or abuser, same person. So harm doer refers also to the abuser. So if you hear me say abuser, I'm also referring to a harm doer. So the will was created after DB advocates in Duluth, Minnesota, where they started having these conversations with female victims about their harm doers. And as I mentioned in the earlier episode, I think it was back in episode 43, there are eight tactics that an abuser will use to control their victim. It's important to note, however, that some of these tactics that we highlight in the power control wheel that can be exhibited in non-abusive relationships. The critical difference though, and I want you to hear me loud and clear, the critical difference that is in a non-abusive relationship, when there is a disagreement, the two individuals will hopefully be able to sit down, have a conversation, and come up with a compromise or a solution. In an abusive relationship, however, these situations play out very differently because the abuser has proven that there are dangerous consequences as a result of the disagreement or as a result of what has transpired. This is where the victim has decided how to respond because the abuser now has power and control and these tactics come into play. So I'm in a non-abusive household. When my husband and I have disagreements, you know, we might have to go in our respective corners at the moment, think about it, and then we come down and we talk about it and we come to a solution. On some things, we got to agree to disagree about, but we come to some compromise. We come to some middle ground. But in abusive relationships, that's not the case. That victim automatically knows the consequences that could possibly be coming his or her way. So one of the areas that we haven't yet discussed on the power control wheels is emotional abuse or psychological abuse. Emotional abuse, this level of abuse occurs far more frequently than physical abuse. And we say this far too often. And I think one of my colleagues said this on last week's episode, this is that area of abuse where you don't see it. And a lot of people won't acknowledge it because you can't see. But in my opinion, this is the area of domestic violence that sometimes takes years and years to overcome. It's a tactic that is used to make the abuser or the harm doer feel superior to their victim. Examples of emotional abuse include they put their victim down, they make their victim feel bad about themselves, they call their victim's name. An example of this, and it's a term that I hear a lot being used now in mainstream media, and we also hear this term being used now in the DV world, and that's the term of gaslighting. And gaslighting is manipulating someone into questioning their own sanity or their powers of reasoning. So there are four types of gaslighting. You have outright lying, just straight up lying, manipulation of reality, 
scapegoating, and coercion. So if you think about the definition of domestic violence and you think about everything that we've talked about this month, gaslighting is nothing but domestic violence. Humiliation is a form of emotional abuse and psychological abuse. Also making a person feel guilty is a form of emotional abuse. Another area that's on the power and control wheel and that is very common with domestic violence is isolation. Isolation is a common tactic used by abusers to keep their victims under control. By isolating the victim, the abuser can conceal the evidence of physical abuse and emotional turmoil from others. In addition, the abuser can manipulate the victim's thoughts, emotions, and actions according to their own wishes. The abuser may also use isolation to control their victim's thinking, the way they feel about things, their behaviors, and this also makes it even more difficult for them to seek help or leave that abusive situation. During isolation, the harm doer will limit the victim's outside, outside involvement with anyone, especially those in their inner circle. The harm doer will use their own jealousy to justify their actions. Well, I love you so much. I just don't want to share you with nobody or their desire to be around the victim because again, they just love them so much. Oh, I haven't seen you all day. So I just want to spend all my time with you. This behavior is why many victims haven't seen family in years because their harm doer prohibits them from seeing family or talking to friends or seeing friends. And they just cut all ties because they know if they do, there will be consequences to themselves or there could be consequences for their family and friends. They choose to isolate out of fear. And this is why they sever ties with loved ones out of fear, not just for themselves, but oftentimes fear for their loved ones. Intimidation is another form of power and control that harm doers will have over their victims. Intimidation is a common tool, especially when they have a history with their victims. The purpose of intimidation is to make the victim feel powerless and unable to do anything. And most of the time when there is that history with that victim, they know their harm doer. So even the, the mere sound of something loud will make that victim flinch or the, the, the sound of their voice could make that victim flinch. And the harm doer knows and uses this to their advantage to gain control over their victim. In addition to intimidation, harm doers will also destroy property, abuse pets, or if there are any weapons in the home, they will show their victims their weapons. And if they have this level of control over their victims, out of the safety for themselves, they will comply. Next is minimizing, denying, and blaming. When a harm doer engages in minimizing, denying, and blaming, they shift the responsibility of the abuse that they have committed, that they have done to their victim, and now they downplay it. 
or they they not just downplay all of it or they downplay they downplay the severity of it or they deny it even took place at all one of the tactics that we see we see all of these in our office but one of the tactics that we are seeing a lot is using children and that's one of the tactics that's on the power and control wheel you know perpetrators of harm door harm doers they often manipulate their victims by using their children to make them feel guilty they know without a shadow of a doubt that their children are the most precious thing to them and they will do anything to protect them. So suppose a victim manages to escape an abusive situation. In that case, the perpetrator may use the children to harass the victim like during visitation or do things like tell your mother I said this or tell your father I said this. In some cases, the harm doer may even threaten to take the children away or I'm going to take you to court for full custody or during the visitation exchange, not show up to the exchange site, not return the child. We see these horrific things happen to our victims, both male and female, far too often. And the final tactic on the power and control wheel is the use of male privilege by the abuser. Now, don't get it twisted. Perpetrators of harm, they do not discriminate based on gender when using this tactic. So a harm doer can be a female and a harm doer can be a male. I want to make that very clear. Abusers are not just men. Abusers are also women. However, male perpetrators or male abusers or harm doers, they tend to treat their victims as subordinates rather than equal partners. They often make unilateral decisions and expect the victims to comply regardless of their own wishes or even their own desires. You know, during this tactic, the harm doer may adopt a dominating persona, like they're the master of the household. And they dictate the roles of what a woman should do in that household and what a man should do in that household. So in essence, that harm doer, that abuser, they control everything. And if you are a victim of domestic violence and this is your life and you are not ready to flee, you are going to do any and everything you can do in those moments to try to minimize the harm to yourself and even to your children and even to your pets sometimes. Unfortunately, we see too often that even when you try to do everything to minimize those things, sometimes that's not even enough. So as human service providers, we are essential to supporting victims and survivors of domestic violence. I cannot stress that enough. You know, we provide we provide the immediate and the long-term assistance to support victims and survivors regain control of their lives. You know, we provide 
support in various ways. And when I say we, I'm not just referring to what I do or what the organization that I provide leadership to, what we do. I'm talking about we as a collective. I'm talking about every single social worker, every single human service professional that is under the sound of my voice or out there in the world that provides services to victims and survivors of domestic violence. We are so essential to these amazing men and women. We are so essential. And so we can support these men, women, and children in a number of ways. Because one of the things that we do in our office, and this is the the, the rub that we have with a lot of our community supporters sometimes, or a lot of our community partners sometimes, is that when a victim is in it, she has or he has no power and control. Their autonomy has been stripped from them. So when they come into our offices, our number one goal is to give them power back, give them the choices and support them in what they want to do for their lives. Now, the hard reality is, is sometimes what they want to do, we don't agree with. But we lay all of the options out for them. We lay every, like a a smorgasbord of options for them. And we allow that person to make that decision, what is best for her or him and their children. Because I am a strong believer that they know what's best. Because everything in their home life has been dictated for them. So as human service professionals, it's important that we provide safety and crisis intervention. You know, provide that immediate safety planning, that we provide emergency shelter if you're able to, that you have a crisis line that you are available 24-7 to provide that support because a lot of times a person might not be ready to flee. They might just need somebody to talk to on the other end. They just might need to hear a caring voice that just listens and maybe just lays out some options for them. Many times, and I think we might have said this last on last week's episode, many times we have individuals come into our office and they will let us know up front, I'm not ready to go. I just, know, I just want to know what my options are. I just want to know what's available. And as much as we want to say, but you can stay right now, that's not our place. And we let him or her know this is what's available to you when you're ready. We also let them know, you know, it's also important with that safety and crisis intervention that you let them know what legal services or what legal obligations are involved and that, you know, that you could connect them to law enforcement. It's all that empowerment and emotional support is so important. You know, it's important that we provide survivors with emotional support in a non-judgmental environment, because as much as you could be that girlfriend or as much as you could be that guy friend or as much as you could be that human service professional or that social worker and you could say that could never be me, never say never You are not exempt from being on the other side of that desk. So you always want to open a space and have a space for any victim and survivor, whether you validate their feelings and you encourage self-esteem through 
providing emotional support in a non-judgmental environment. Information and education. Educate survivors. You know, one of the things that we do is we show them the power and support wheel at intake. We do a lethality assessment. And sometimes when they hear that score, they are shocked. Well, that's when the breakthrough happens. Or when they go through the power and control wheel, it's at that point when they realize, wow, I am in an abusive relationship. Some victims don't even know that they are in an abusive relationship because this is their norm. It's important that we educate about the cycle of violence, the signs, always the resources that are available. And if they are thinking about fleeing, the legal protections that are available for the, available for them and their children. If there is legal assistance, how can legal assistance support the survivor? How can legal assistance support the children if there are children involved? What that looks like going to court? What custody issues look like? What will court appearances look like? What does navigating that legal system, what does it even look like? Housing and economic, you know, that economic stability. Because that victim, whether it be a male victim or female victim, oftentimes that abuser or harm doer governed all of the household finances. So they might need financial counseling. They might need support in finding a job. They might need support in getting connected to whatever Department of Social Services is in your community to get signed up for basic entitlements like SNAP benefits and health insurance. And if there are younger children involved, WIC benefits. So it's important that you know where these benefits are and get these families or these individuals signed up for these things. Unfortunately, sometimes you might have to get child and family services involved or if it's child protective services in your area. You know, if children have been exposed, if children are also the secondary victims, as human service professionals and social workers, we are mandated reporters and it sucks. It sucks. But it's necessary that we also protect our secondary victims because a lot of times these secondary victims, they can't even speak for themselves. So it's important that you support the children who have been exposed to the abuse, who have been exposed to the abuse. If you are an agency that provides counseling, see if your therapist provides also counseling to children, what would that process look like? Address the health and well-being of the entire family. That harm doer might have never allowed that victim to go to the doctors for any of her injuries. For any black eye, for any broken rib, for anything. She may not have had her yearly checkup because he didn't want her out. He didn't want her to see a doctor. These are important things that you need to know. So if she needs to be connected to medical, if she needs to be connected to mental health, ask 
human service professionals and social workers, we need to be present for those things. Advocacy and case management, all of this is a part of advocacy and case management. Develop individualized safety plans because the reality is, is that even if she flees, there is a good, or he, there is a good chance that they may return. And if they do, ensure that there is a safety plan in place. Always have community resources. One of the biggest things, though, is the cultural competency and sensitivity when it comes to domestic violence. And I say this because culturally, this shows up very different. And yes, domestic violence is wrong in my eyes, regardless of what culture you are in, regardless of what color you are, what race you are, what ethnicity you are, what God you serve, what religion, what denomination you are. If it's wrong, it's wrong. With that said, as an organization, as a human service professional, As a social worker, you still have to be extremely careful and understand the cultural aspects of domestic violence. If you are an executive director or a program director or program manager and you are listening to this, ensure that your agency is able to effectively respond in a culturally sensitive way when it is a victim who is not of the quote-unquote culture that your agency is used to serving. Because there are things that come with certain cultures that you may not be aware of. I am very proud of the agency where I am because our advocates and our case manager will learn things very quickly and and are very aware of, you know, our, our staff is very diverse. We have uh, all, most of our staff or well, 50% of our staff, I'm going to say half and half, are um, bilingual and Spanish and are very aware of the cultural sensitivity of domestic violence in the Spanish speaking community. We also have other culturally sensitive topics that come up that are not Hispanic related, but that are other other related to other cultures. I'm trying to say this without disclosing too much, but that are other that are related to other cultures that we have had to learn in the past, I'm going to say three months. And I think we handled it very well. It was a struggle, but we handled it very well, acknowledging that in certain cultures, men are dominant. And it showed in these cases. And we had to be culturally sensitive about it or even for our clients that come in and they are very religious and you know my pastor told me to just pray it away or they told us to just come to church and they'll pray for us so we are we always ensure that we are culturally responsive to meet the diverse needs of all of the clients that come through our doors. 
And this goes into always ensuring that education and training is going on within the agency for North Carolina NCCADV, which is the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They provide amazing free training. And in NCCASA, which is the North Carolina Coalition Against Sexual Assault, they also provide amazing training. And then follow-up, follow-up and long-term support is really, really important. It's important because, remember, isolation So a lot of times our victims come in and they have been isolated. So they haven't talked to family or friends in so long. So they are reestablishing support systems. You can become that support system within boundaries for that client. And I think it's really, really important that that client knows that you are that support system for him or her and their children. You know, each case involving a survivor of domestic violence should always be approached individually by human service providers and social workers because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's needs are differently, and you have to approach each case or each client or each individual differently. However, You must approach each person with compassion, each person in a non-judgmental tone, and each person with support. The support provided should be tailored to their specific needs and circumstances. You know, the primary aim should be to empower the survivor to make the decision that is best for them and their family and to give them the autonomy to make the best decisions for their lives and their well-being. It is crucial to understand that every survivor has unique needs and challenges, which is why this is not a one-size-fits-all. That's why a personalized approach is so essential for delivering, you know, effective and impactful support, long-term support for victims of domestic violence. And domestic violence, is, it's, a, it's a community issue. So if you feel like that is not happening in your neighborhood, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. It happens to those that you would least expect for it to happen to. So I thank you, thank you so much for opening up your space for this much needed conversation this month. Again, every episode this month was dedicated to my beautiful sister friend, Rhonda Nixon. Rhonda, I miss you so much. And we will continue to push forward and make you proud in this fight, this forever fight against domestic violence and making a safe space where all victims can come and feel seen and feel heard. So as always, radical self-care is health care and kindness is free. So do me a favor, be kind to someone today. I love you so much for listening. Until next time, bye.